So we're looking at uh, Romans chapter 11 this evening. So we're going to look at verses uh, 11 uh, down to 24. 11 down to 24. And Paul is talking about the Jews and why is it they seem to not to respond so well to the gospel, uh, although some have, like Paul himself. But he talks about them stumbling over, over Christ. And so he picks up in verse 11. So, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Before I was a minister, I, was a, I used to work in a pretty large organization uh, with thousands of people in it. And uh, one thing I used to find as a, a young man in this organization was that uh, Though I knew the job in front of me, uh, and I knew all the next things that needed to be doing, needed, needed to be done, um, my vision was pretty blinkered uh, about the larger place of my of, of my work in the in the grand organisation and the overall project. And I was even more blinkered as to the strategic direction of the the company that I worked for. Uh, that's what it's like. You sometimes feel like you're a uh, a small cog in a big organization. And um, you wonder what the bigger point of it 
is at all. Um, and sometimes I think we can be a bit like that with respect to the gospel. Um, we understand, for example, we understand the need for individuals uh, to hear the gospel and to come to a living faith in Christ for salvation. And we understand the need to live for Christ in the spheres of life that God has, has placed us in, uh, in family, in, in our workplace, uh, in our role as citizens of this country, um, if we are citizens of this country. And uh, some of you are not, I know. <laughs> Uh, but you still have to be law-abiding, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so these are, these are all things that are important as a Christian. And, but many of us may feel that we've not grasped the, the bigger picture of what it is that God is doing across the world and what he's been doing throughout history. Um, and Paul, I think, understands that about his readers. Um, they know that he's an apostle commissioned to, to preach the gospel, and perhaps they know that he is commissioned particularly to preach to the Gentiles. He, he mentions that in verse uh, 13. But Paul has been anticipating some, some puzzles or some puzzling questions that may have arisen in, in his readers' minds. Um, how does what you're doing now, Paul, fit in with God's overall plans in history? Uh, after all, wasn't God previously interested in Israel, the nation, Israel? Um, is he not interested any longer? And the question arise, arose in verse 1, has God rejected his people? And uh, so the question is, what, what about Israel today, Paul? Um, how do we fit that all together and understand this big, uh, this big question? And I think that's what Paul is, is addressing in this chapter. Um, he's already answered the question, has God rejected his people? And his answer to that is no. For, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, and one, one is simply that he's a Jew and he's been c- converted. We saw that last time. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I myself, for I myself am an Israelite and a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, well, there's at least one Israelite who is faithful to God. God hasn't forgotten uh, that Israelite. But the bigger picture is that we looked at last time is that God has a, a remnant of people. Uh, so we may not see them, and we may... Uh, you know, Paul might say to the Roman Christians, you, know, you may not see them, but there is a remnant that God is keeping for himself. And, and so God has not forget, rejected Israel. He's not forget, forgotten his people. And he is saving that uh, remnant. Now, the other side of that, of course, is that as well as saving some, God is, is actually hardening the hearts of others. And so we saw that as well last, last week. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Hardened to the gospel. And then, so every time they hear more about the grace of God, they, they get just that little bit harder against the gospel. Uh, how many people have you known who have perhaps been like that? They've, they've maybe initially been interested in the gospel, but the more they hear the gospel, they seem to get harder and harder. And they, they don't seem to want to put their faith in Christ. In fact, they get turned off. This is... It's such a common phenomenon. 
And, and so the, the next question is, is that it then? Is, it, is that what God is doing? He's just hardening people. Uh, what is the final point of hardening Israel? Is that the only purpose their lives serve and the purposes of God? To stumble over Christ, to, to fall over him, to fall down, to never get up. And that's the end of the story. That's the question I think Paul asks in verse 11. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? However, like so many times, we have seen that the answer is an emphatic, by no means. By no means. In other words, that is not the end of the story of these people of Israel. There is yet another twist to the purpose of God for the Jews. And it involves Jews and jealousy. Uh, A curious thing. Jews and jealousy. So let's think about Jews and jealousy. Um, Paul mentions jealousy twice in this passage. In verse 11, um, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to Gentiles so as to make Israel uh, jealous. And then verse 14 in order that somehow, I magnify my ministry, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And this idea of jealousy was actually present in chapter 10, where he quotes from Moses, from Deuteronomy, and he says, I asked, did Israel not understand? And first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So jealousy seems to figure quite a bit in the lives of of the Jews. Um, We'll see why in a second, but Paul, in answer to his own question, did did they stumble in order that they might fall? His answer is emphatic, by no means. Uh, But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And actually, that's a pattern. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that that's, that's a pattern that Paul seems to see in his ministry. If you look back to Acts chapter 18, turn back a few pages um, and have a look with me. You see there's Paul in Corinth and uh, in verse 5, Acts 18 verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with, with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your bloods be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his own household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, that's quite an audacious thing to happen. Paul going into the synagogue and and preaching and teaching and and getting rejection and rejection. After about two or three weeks, he seems to get rejection. And then he just shakes out his garments and says, right, I'm going to go next door and start preaching to those people. And some of them, you know, some of them get saved and some of the Jews have got saved as well. And Paul's understanding of that is... That my going to the Gentiles actually has this effect on some Jews of making them jealous 
and beginning to consider uh, the gospel, uh, perhaps afresh. And uh, so out of the wreckage of the rejection of the Israelites, you get this salvation coming to the Gentiles, um, remarkably. And that's quite a good thing, an amazing thing, anyway. Paul didn't plan it, but that's just how it's fallen out. And Paul's not, but Paul's not finished there because great though the salvation of the Gentiles is, Paul sees a yet further purpose beyond the salvation of the Gentiles. And it's to do with the effect of this saving of the Gentiles, what effect that has on the Jews themselves, that they become jealous. And there's no doubt that jealousy is, is a feature of the Jewish response to Paul. If you go back to Acts 17 now, and Paul in Thessalonica, verse 4, some of them, so Paul's in the synagogue again, and he says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, the Gentiles, and not a few leading women. But, verse 5, the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in uproar and attacked Jason, the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. See, jealousy begins to motivate the Jews. And in the midst of all of that, people are getting saved. That's pretty pretty shocking. And Paul is quite clear, as we're back in Romans 11 now, that Paul is quite clear that... His ministry to the Gentiles is, from God's perspective, is intended to have this this effect on on onlooking Jews that some of them might then be saved and might give the gospel a new hearing. And so we see this, this chain of events that Paul's describing here. First of all, a stumbling over Christ. Then going to the Gentiles to preach the gospel who then receive it. Then the Jews getting jealous over the response they see in the Gentiles. And some of them are then opened up to see the gospel and actually get up and receive Jesus Christ. And themselves become Christians. Well, it's quite a strange thing, isn't it? Jealousy is a funny thing. We mentioned this before, but jealousy is a strange thing. It can be a righteous thing. Uh, a good thing. Uh, God is a jealous God, and we don't hold that against him. He, he is jealous for his own glory. And uh, the point about that kind of jealousy is that when uh, that it's, it's righteous to be jealous, to preserve something uh, that rightly should be preserved. So God's glory deserves to be preserved, and so God is jealous for his own glory. And Christians should be jealous for God's glory as well. Uh, but in other areas as well, we, we, there's a right kind of jealousy. Uh, husbands and wives should be jealous for their marriage and defend their marriage and do everything they can to strengthen their marriage. Uh, to be jealous is, is a great thing. Um, and it's good to be angry when those things are, are violated. But jealousy can become an unright, unrighteous thing it actually begins to drift into uh, kind of envy uh, or 
Or when you begin to set your heart on the wrong things and try to preserve things that should not be preserved, you become jealous for those. And it becomes unrighteous to do that. So, for example, a man has every right to be, je- to be jealous to guard his wife against the interests of other men. But a man has no right to be jealous about a female friend who has other such f- uh, friendships with, with men. So a, pe- a person is right to be jealous about the gospel and true faith in God through Jesus Christ. But, is, but it is not right to be jealous about preserving a religion of righteousness... Uh, such you know, by works, which the Jews were of Paul's time were seeking to preserve. They were very jealous about their religion, but they're jealous about the wrong thing. So this is a, an unrighteous jealousy, but here's an amazing thing. Through that unrighteous jealousy, God is able to do something amazing. That some of those people of Israel, the Jews, uh, begin to question why they're doing what they're doing. And their hearts begin to open up to the saving grace of God, which they've missed in all their traditions. And that's true of some people. It's true of Paul himself. Remember him. What drove him to, to persecute the church? To, to break up meetings like this, you know, to barge in with all his soldiers and, uh, and henchmen and thugs and break up a meeting like this. What caused him to do that? He thought he was being righteous. He was preserving the traditions of the Jews. And yet it was in the midst of that jealousy that God came to him on the Damascus Road. And the way was actually paved for Paul to to meet with Christ. And Paul actually holds out the hope that there will be yet more, a significant number of Jews yet to be saved. He's saying that most have rejected Christ so far, but that a remnant have come to Christ. And actually he's looking ahead to their fullness or their full inclusion. There will be a full number. I'm not sure it means every single Jew. But there is a full number that are going to come in. And we shouldn't lose hope in evangelizing uh, Jews. What Paul is doing here is he is, as it were, pulling back the curtain of God's purposes so that we can see just a glimpse of what God is doing in history. That though there seems to be rejection by a large and significant part of the human population, that is not all that is happening. And in our situation, here in Solihull today, we mustn't get discouraged when people reject the gospel. It is not failure. As we've said before many times, God is doing exactly what he planned to do. And there may be some hardening of hearts, but it may only be temporary. There is still time and there are still ways that God is at work behind the scenes. So we should be encouraged just to keep going and doing the right thing and preaching the gospel. Let me move on to the... uh, 
the idea of Gentiles and grafting. Or by grafting, I don't mean hard work. I mean a horticultural term. Grafting into a, a, a plant. Paul has been specifically addressing the Gentiles at this point in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And he is about to present to them uh, a picture of all of this. Now we've, we've read a lot of words, but now he wants to give us a mental image of what God is doing in history, particularly in regard to the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, the image he wants to use is that of an olive tree. So it's an image that comes up in, in the Bible all over. Uh, the olive tree often, often represents the people of God. And he's doing that because he wants to give a warning to some of his hearers. And we'll come to those warnings in a minute. But what Paul is doing here is painting a picture on the canvas of our minds of a, of a beautiful olive tree. And and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is called a cultivated olive tree. It's uh, Jeremiah 11, verse 6. The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. Jeremiah eleven sixteen. And so Israel has always been this olive tree that God has been cultivating. And some of you will have fruit trees in your garden. We've got some fruit trees in our garden. And maybe you're somebody that wants to get fruit from your trees. And uh, what do you need to do to produce a good crop? You, you need to prune it. Uh, we've got a plum tree, and um, I just didn't get around to pruning it this year. And as a result, we've only got about 10 plums. And normally, we get hundreds. <laughs> but pruning really, really helps. It really matters. And... Uh, so that's one thing you can do. You can prune all the bad, the bad branches off so you can get good fruit. The other thing you can do is, is graft in other branches from other plants. And I know that in apple trees, most, most apple trees are actually grafted. Did you know that? I, I think that's what that's some, oh, I found out once. That the root stock is different from the rest of it, and that's all been grafted in. And the, if you go and buy an apple tree in a... In a garden center, it's often grafted from a, a, a certain rootstock. And, uh, but it's possible, you see, just to, to graft in different kinds of apples into the, same, into the same tree. And Paul uses this kind of analogy in, and applies it to salvation, not only to what is happening in the present day, but of what has been going on throughout history. Because what he does here, I believe, is to identify the root of the, the, of the plant, which is, I think, related to uh, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The root of the plant. So historically, there's a people that God has worked with. And from that root grow the shoots and the branches that will one day bear fruit. So this is a, it's actually a historical picture. The plant is an historical picture. And two things are going to happen to this, this plant, this olive tree. The first is that, that the unproductive branches need to be broken off. And he refers to that in verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, 
And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the tree and so on. So the first thing is, you know, some branches are going to be broken off. And of course that refers to the, the component of Israel whose hearts are hardened to the gospel. But then also, uh, there are people, there are branches that are going to be grafted in to this plant, to this olive tree. And these are, these are branches that come from a wild olive tree, but you can graft them into a cultivated one, and they begin to be fruitful as well. And these are the converted Gentiles. Wild olive branches now brought into the cultivation process. Though grafting onto the same rootstock as the natural branches so as to become part of the same plant. This is a wonderful picture. It gives us, I think, the mental equipment to enable us to see how it is that both Jews and Gentiles can be united in the same salvation because they are part of the same tree. Some natural, born into it if you like, but some are grafted in as they come to faith as well. So all of them, of course, are in faith. They're all believing in God's promises. But it gives us a way to think about the difference between Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers. The believers remain part of the natural plant, but the unbelievers are like the branches that need to be broken off. But it also shows us finally that both Jew and Gentile branches of this olive tree of the Christian church have an intimate connection to the Old Testament believers like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so on. In other words, believing Israelites and believing Gentiles in the New Testament are called the church. And it's very important that we understand this. There is a view around in large parts of the Christian world that the Old Testament people of Israel are not the same body as the New Testament church. That there are actually two different peoples that God is working with in history, Israel and the church. And they believe that that's true even today. I'm not, we're not saying that they're not, these people are not Christians. They are, but they just have a, a, you know, a strange view of history. But actually it's a very common view. Israel and the church are two different things. And it's a view, unfortunately, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny when you understand passages like this one, that there is only one plant. There's only one olive tree. I was struck recently just reading through the book of Hebrews, and uh, uh, just to change the subject slightly, but you know, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, it describes Moses as a servant in the household of God. And then he compares that with Jesus, the, the son over the household of God. But here's the interesting thing that often people miss. It's the same household <laughs> in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just Moses is a servant in the house and Jesus is the son over the house. But it's the same house. Same people. One people. There's only one olive tree. This is what Paul is saying here. 
And I've met many people who believe that there are two peoples, Israel and the church. And when I say, but the New Testament only knows about the church, they have accused me, and in the nicest possible way, (laughs) they accused me, and others, other Reformed people like me, of believing in a thing called replacement theology. Maybe have you heard of replacement theology? There's some nods. That we believe that the church has replaced Israel. But you need to... What the person saying that doesn't understand is they're working from their own assumptions that there are two people. And how can you have only one person? Well, only if the second replaces the first. But we've never believed there are two people. That's why the Puritans used to talk about the church in the Old Testament. Believers. Believers in the promises of God looking forward to the the Christ who would come. There's only one olive tree. And you're either cut off from it, or you're grafted into it, or you're naturally born into it. And the church we see today is made up of believers. That's, uh, that's not, it's not actually a new thing. Uh, it's a very ancient thing. The people of God have always been made up of believers. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 4. That the faith that Abraham had is the same as the faith that we have. Because it's the same Christ that we all believe in. If they didn't believe in the same Christ in the Old Testament, they don't have the same faith, do they? They can't have. It's a different faith. And so the, the church, for example, some people say the church began at Pentecost. No, it doesn't. It didn't. It started a long time before that. As long as there have been believers in the world, believing the promises of God, there has been a church. Sometimes it's been called Israel. But it's always been the church. The first believers in the covenant of grace. And actually seen in this light, the Old Testament is therefore... Uh, not an irrelevance to us, an irrelevance to the New Testament church, but it was vitally important to us to understand this plant that we are a part of, if we've been grafted into it. To understand that there is only one people, and historically there always has been one people. Well, let me just move on to this warning that Paul gives to the Gentiles. And we've laid out this picture then of uh, Paul as, and he's, you know, he's speaking as a pastor to this church. He has, he's never met them yet, but he's speaking as a pastor. And he gives uh, warnings to these Gentile believers. He's aware as a pastor how the human heart works. Um, I'm, the longer I go on in ministry, the more I. I realize just how much a pastor and growing Christians need to understand how the human heart works. That Christianity is more than simply about knowing some doctrine, although that's necessary. But knowing how the human heart works is vital to help each, for us to be able to help each other. And one of the issues is sinful human pride. Uh, Paul raises that in verse 18. He says, Do not be arrogant towards the branches. 
remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Uh, Why would sinful pride come into the Gentiles, uh, these Gentile Christians? And I think it's something that, uh, a temptation that we've been talking about all the way through these chapters. That when you know that these Israelites have been cut off because of their unbelief, but you are grafted in uh, as ones of faith, what's the temptation there? Is the temptation there is to think that you've got, you are something special because you're a believer. And these people aren't. And somehow to think that you're, you've qualified because you have faith. As though you've done something good. You must somehow be better than them. And after all, Paul says in verse 19, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Doesn't that make you feel special? Since pride can come in. And begin to think something that you're, of yourself that you're not. And the answer is, instead of pride, to stand in awe of God. It's true they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Remember who God is. Remember what he has the power to do. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Why does he make it conditional like that? As long as you continue. Well, Paul, as a pastor, I mean, he believes in the doctrine of election. That God has chosen his people from before the foundation of the earth. The thing is, he doesn't know who they are. And the sign of that people aren't genuinely chosen is that they persevere. And so he knows that he might be writing to some hypocrites who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but don't really know him. And they may fall away. Something of a paradox, isn't it? We wrestle with these questions of election. But in reality, in history, you have to deal with what you see in front of you. It is true that there is an elect bunch of people. But we don't always know who they are. And the evidence is in how they live. And how they hold fast to the things of God. And Paul warns them to always have in mind, the, first of all, the kindness of God. But in the gospel, there's a clear demonstration of God's unbounded love and an undeserved grace towards sinners and those whose sins have necessitated the, the sending of his son into the world to take your place in, in suffering, but now showers the, upon you the benefits of justification and sanctification and adoption and glorification and so on. But also, as well as the kindness of God, remember the severity of God. Remember the hardening of hearts of those who reject Christ in the gospel. It comes to us as a warning. Because all that is left for those branches is to be cut off 
that are cut off is to be is, is judgment. And that's what Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says such fruitless branches will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Why does Paul warn that this may happen to some of them? Because actually there's no such thing as a Christian who has a characteristic of open pride. But some of them may be proud. And such, a person with such pride does not depend on God any longer. And doesn't throw him or herself upon the kindness of God. It's, it says, thanks for the gift, but I've, I'm handling it from here. So continually resting in God. And such pride presumes to have salvation because it is felt to be deserved rather than simply received. That's the danger. Friends, when people like Paul come with the gospel, it's not because he has something that will add to our arsenal of good qualities or that it will make us a better people in the eyes of others or that it will confer upon us honors that will make people look up to us rather when Paul comes with the gospel he comes to those who are desperately needy utterly needy, utterly helpless and it's a humbling thing to receive the gospel because only by grace can you be saved and that gets rid of any arrogance and any pride And actually, that humility is one of the signs of genuine conversion. So, uh, as we finish, has that happened to you? Have you been humbled by the gospel? Have you seen the kindness and the severity of God? You need both to rightly come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this revelation of yourself that you are indeed infinitely kind and good. But you are also holy and stand against sin. And if we stand in our pride, we in the end will not stand. Father, we pray you'd humble us so that you can lift us up For Jesus' sake. Amen.